we will start uh, with the first presentation and it uh, it gives me uh, a great pleasure to introduce our first speaker is my friend and colleague Jeremy uh, Siegelman. Dr. Siegelman is an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine. He has been in the faculty since 2011 and uh, he received his MD for M uh, from Albert Einstein and then completed his emergency medicine residency at the Harvard Affiliated Emergency Medicine Residency in, in, in Boston. He's a member of the Council of Emergency Medicine Residency Directors, the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine, and uh, American College of Emergency Physician. And he has a lot of interests, research interests that have not nothing to do with COVID or long COVID, but he has personal experience with long COVID and wrote an article in JAMA that I would encourage everybody to read. So please, Jeremy, uh, take it from here. Well, good morning, uh, and uh, thank you so much, Carlos. Uh, for the opportunity to be here and to chat with everybody about what my experience has been. So yeah, I, I'm an emergency physician at uh, Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta and associate professor of emergency medicine here at Emory. And this is not a scientific presentation like any I, I usually give. Uh, this is uh, my personal experience with being a patient uh, and also now, uh, again, being a physician practicing emergency medicine uh, with uh, with lessons learned from that experience. Uh, and, um, you know, about three months into um, having long COVID, I sat down and, and wrote about what my experience was at that point uh, in this GEM article that, uh, that Dr. Del Rio mentioned. And it's, uh, it's just startling, I think, as I sit here today, almost two and a half years after that point to think this is, is still going on. So I'm, I'm uh, happy to share with you what my experience has been um, and um, and what maybe we can take away as we as we listen to the the remainder of the presentations over the course of today. Uh, Fatima, thank you. So you can show the next slide and then and then turn the slides off. Um, so my story is this I, on uh, August second of twenty twenty, I worked uh, an, what was a normal uh, shift in the in the emergency department that evening. Um, I uh, came home about 12, 1230, and uh, as I sometimes do, decided to sleep in the basement to not disturb my family as I was as I was coming in. Um, the next morning I woke up, drove the kids to camp, and uh, noted that I had a headache, which is, uh, you know, I'm not really a headache guy, but sometimes that happens. And and uh, got to work in the in the home office and over a couple hours realized that uh, that headache was getting more severe uh, and I took my temperature and there was a low grade fever, 100.4 or so. Um, but otherwise I felt uh, decently well and I and I thought, okay, well, maybe this is it's my turn. I've, I've avoided this thing for for five months, but maybe it's it's just my turn. And and I was a 40 year old healthy guy at the time. And so no thought that this would be um, anything other than a, a very mild course. And really, that that is what it was over that first week. Um, some some aches, some low grade fevers, some chills in the evenings. Um, I lost my sense of smell and taste that next morning, uh, like so many others. And uh, and we were almost having fun with it. My kids made a, a taste testing plate for me that they left outside and, and they looked down from from above uh, on the deck as I was tasting each thing and uh, and the only thing on that plate that I could taste was skittles I guess it depends how much uh, artificial taste there is in, in something um, 
And so we uh, we just waited and I stayed downstairs and uh, isolated and did puzzles and watched TV and even worked a little bit and uh, and we just waited. Uh, and we kept waiting. So as the first week went on to the second, um, the fever stayed and the headache stayed. Um, and so each morning and uh, especially in the evenings, I would have temperatures hovering around 100.4, 100.6. Um, and so, so I just stayed isolating. And that meant that my wife, who works a full-time job also, suddenly became effectively a single mother and was uh, worried about relying on others for help because we didn't know whether uh, she and the kids were contagious. And so she, she was just trying to do everything on her own. And that, that became uh, certainly very difficult for the family like it was for, for so many others at the time. And for me, uh, my symptoms started to change over the maybe third and fourth week. Um, and this you'll hear is very typical, as many of you know, for, for long COVID patients is that they have uh, perhaps a mild course to the initial infection and then new symptoms that develop later um, over the next month or so. And for me, uh, that became uh, most notably palpitations um, at rest with any exertion, after large meals and uh, most distressingly waking me up in the middle of the night. I'd be awake for 30 or 60 minutes uh, with my heart pounding. Uh, accompanied, accompanying that was this really profound post-exertional malaise, uh, which I can best describe as a, uh, a draining of my battery, really with any physical or cognitive exertion. So uh, a Zoom call like this, especially if I was speaking, uh, would leave me uh, really couch-bound and completely exhausted for, for many hours afterwards, as would walking just, just a half mile or, uh, uh, or even a little bit less. The headaches continued, and uh, I began to notice uh, what I later began to understand was, was brain fog, which for me was a real cloudiness in my, in my thinking. Um, I didn't have the memory trouble that other people describe with this um, or the word finding difficulties, but I, I just noted this cloudiness that really um, that really got in the way of thinking and planning and scheduling. Um, and of course, the, the taste and smell didn't get better uh, either, despite despite lots of uh, lots of essential oils in the house that we were trying with the olfactory therapy. And so I guess the first lesson that I'll describe is, is you know, this mild illness uh, can really have dramatic effects. You know, certainly in my job, I had seen people much more seriously affected by COVID um, and young patients like me who were torn from their families. Um, and so by all measures, my illness was mild. However, uh, the 40 days that I spent in isolation had drastic effects on my family. Um, and you know, it wasn't just, I, I would say the isolation, but also the uncertainty uh, that goes along with that. And, you know, as my wife and I thought about what effect this might have on the next months, years, or decades of our, of our life together, uh, it, it caused a lot of, a lot of worry. And, um, and I think that's shared by, by many of our patients who are dealing with these, um, these, these illnesses and, and post-viral conditions like this. Uh, the other thing I'd say is it was really difficult to ask for help. So, you know, I was out of work for five months straight. 
And every one of those days, I was aware that my colleagues were working my shifts at a time when the emergency department was uh, a dangerous place to be, uh, really for the first time in our careers, in, in my career. Uh, and, and also people were just stressed and hurting themselves psychologically. And so this was an extra burden I knew I was putting on my colleagues. Um, and it was hard for my uh, wife and I to ask for help from friends um, for, you know, keep, to keep the house going and the kids uh, continuing with their, with their lives while I was really stuck on the couch. Um, and that caused for me certainly a, a good bit of guilt. And um, I know that talking to other people with long COVID as this affects, especially their personal relationships where they're leaning on people differently, um, that's, that's a big change for them and it causes a, a good bit of stress, I think, in, in relationships. Um, and, you know, so again, I was out for, for five months of work. Uh, I came back at, um, in January of 2021 at just four hour shifts instead of eight hours. And that um, led to you know, ongoing overtime requests for my, for my colleagues. Um, and it wasn't until just this March uh, of 22, of 23, that I've been able to, to return to, uh, to full-time work. In those early days, I saw my doctor frequently and um, virtually, um, and she would order x-rays and lab tests and my cardiologist ordered an EKG and echocardiograms. And, and all the while we were looking for alternative diagnoses, um, we were looking for um, any objective signs of where, where organ damage might be and, and what, we could, what we could dive into and actually treat. And I'll say that each time I waited for the results with some really profound ambivalence, right? I, I wanted everything to be fine. I wanted to be well. And yet there is this need as a, as a physician, especially, and also as a patient to have some objective confirmatory evidence uh, to rely on for um, really to, to, to understand what was happening, to uh, justify how I was feeling, to convince my disability insurer that I was disabled and couldn't work. Um, and, uh, but mostly to quiet my own doubts. And, you know, the, the truth is certainly in, in my specialty, we're very accustomed to relying on our physical exam and then ancillary testing to be able to uh, confirm a diagnosis. And when those things are lacking, but the patient is feeling badly, there's this dissonance that happens. And, um, and I hadn't really thought about it, uh, honestly, as a physician much before that. It's not something we really talk about in medical school. Um, but the thing that I learned, I think more than anything, is that patients really need validation. Um, you know, I felt bad, I looked, but I looked well. I had two COVID swabs that were negative um, on days zero and 18 of my illness. So so probably not uh, the ideal time to test. And we didn't really have easy access to rapid tests at that point either. Um, my chest X-ray, my lab test, all were normal. And so, so this doubt that I mentioned was there uh, really all the time. And, and in each morning, I would wake up feeling okay. And the, the pattern of my symptoms was that they would be worse in the afternoons. And so uh, I would wake up thinking, okay, maybe this is fine. Maybe I should just get back to work. And then I would eat something and not taste it, and by the afternoon, um, be feeling really low again. And uh, 
and I'd be reminded of how difficult this was. Uh, I should say it was really only I who caused that that question mark uh, for myself. My doctors, my spouse, my colleagues, my friends all took it at face value. And, and that is not typical for long COVID patients. Uh, I was very fortunate that people um, believed me uh, when I was looking so well and, and carried on trying to help me. So, you know, as I reflect on, again, on patients that I've seen in the emergency department who, um, who had these invisible illnesses, people who were suffering with things that I couldn't test for or touch, um, I, I regret that, um, that my language may not have always conveyed uh, as much empathy and validation as those people needed. Uh, because the reality is they came to me, especially in the emergency department, at a time of real um, hopelessness in a lot of cases, where they were having trouble finding validation from um, the physicians they had seen, or, or maybe were having trouble finding a physician at all. You know, where I work is a safety net hospital, and it's not always easy for someone to, to be able to get to a doctor or to be able to take off work to get to a doctor. Um, and I think that what many of my patients expressed to me and, and what I know from talking to other people with long COVID is that uh, they're off this, this dissonance between a, object, a lack of objective testing and, um, and what a patient is suffering from and their symptoms, uh, I think creates a need for, faculty, for, for physicians and uh, healthcare providers to really bring more humility to the bedside, to, to understand that the lack of objective testing doesn't mean that there's nothing wrong physically with the patient, but perhaps that there's a test that we don't have yet or an understanding about a disease process that we don't uh, possess yet. And, and really then to offer the patient um, at the very minimum, uh, a simple statement of validation. I hear what you're saying, I see you suffering, and I wanna help you get the care you need, even if I don't uh, see it myself today in the, with these tests that are available to me. And I think that, uh, I think that would go a long way. Over those um, ensuing months, um, I was fortunate enough to be connected with a cardiologist who had uh, expertise in dysautonomia at, at Emory who, um, recognized the growing population of post-COVID patients who, who had symptoms that fit with that, so POTS and other conditions. And um, together, uh, I was happy to, to engage in this, this uh, endeavor of trial and error with her. Um, and every, each, each new therapy that she read about, we'd talk about, and if there's any shred of evidence, I was uh, happy to try it. And so what's been most helpful for me over these months has been AV nodal blockers and uh, antihistamines, um, as is true for dysautonomia from lots of other, um, lots of other post-viral conditions. Um, but I've also tried all kinds of other things, uh, both suggested by my doctor and even, yes, from uh, online patient groups where people are reporting what they're, what they're trying. And, and I had never really understood the desperation uh, people feel and what that 
um, what that will enable you to try um, when you've you've sort of gone past what medicine knows. So I've done some diet change, countless supplements, uh, kind of recommended by my colleagues and others, um, and even some higher risk treatments too, like uh, triple anticoagulation therapy, uh, and and even a stellate ganglion block. And I never thought that I'd be going for a needle in my neck to, um, with scant evidence, but based on a, a case series and talking to the the author of that study and and uh, experts at Emory who do this procedure, I went ahead and did uh, bilateral stellate ganglion blocks, which is an injection in your neck to block your sympathetic um, pathway. And I had five glorious days of my taste completely coming back. My other symptoms were mildly improved, but what most affected um, my 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 whole spirit, my psyche, was was being able to taste. And we went out to dinners, and I uh, tasted everything in the pantry, and it was wonderful to have that back, and to know after all this time of wondering that that actually it wasn't um, it wasn't gone forever, uh, but it was gone after five days, it, I woke up and it was uh, back to where we were. And I'll say that that really, um, that really shook me to, to have been given that gift of, 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 um, of health again, and then have it, see it just uh, flutter away was re really left me in a pretty low point. I was angry, I was sad. Um, and I'll say that, uh, you know, again, my, my perspective from having treated plenty of COVID patients in the emergency department is, is to know that I, um, I'm lucky that this could have been much worse. And that has kept me positive uh, for the most part throughout, um, throughout my illness. However, um, days like that, uh, setbacks like that really do take me to some dark places. But the truth is um, I am very lucky. And I would say that's my biggest takeaway. I, you know, I had a basement that I could isolate in and not, uh, not infect my family. They all, they all uh, went uninfected during that initial infection. Um, I would say that my employer uh, used a symptom-based approach for return to work, which is very unusual for most patients dealing with long COVID, um, especially those um, that aren't in my socioeconomic demographic. And I think that, you know, not only that, I would say that you know my doctors. Um, took me at face value, as I said, and that may be because I'm a physician, it may be because I'm a man, uh, probably it's because they're wonderful physicians uh, and very compassionate, but, uh, but I know that that's not the experience of so many around the world who are dealing with this. And, you know, I have made significant improvements over these three, three years, uh, thanks to these physicians, thanks to uh, some medicines that, I, that I've been on and uh, certainly, though, this has changed my experience on caring for patients with invisible illnesses um, and how I relate to them in the emergency department. And I, uh, you know, maybe I'm preaching to the choir for those who are, who are choosing to come today, but I, I do challenge you listening today to consider my story the next time you treat someone with subjective symptoms that... Uh, go along with a mild illness, which you may not be able to test for at the time, because it's probably not so mild for them. 
Um, I'm happy to take your questions now. I look forward to talking some more throughout the day. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeremy. That was a perfect way to start this, this webinar. And I think, you know, nothing like a personal perspective, a patient perspective, and you being a patient and a physician, I think it's a stark reminder to all of us about the reality is that as physicians, we're not immune to diseases. We're not immune to, to also being a patient. And, and that gives us a very, very unique perspective. Uh, there are a couple of questions from, uh, from coming from the audience. The first one says, as an emergency physician who treated COVID, and someone who has done COVID, how do you feel about the end of the masking mandates and the end of the public health emergency? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I gotta say that I'm, um, I'm ambivalent like many. Uh, on the one hand, I, I, you know, I'll tell you that, and I didn't mention this before, but I went to a um, medical conference last year and myself and many of my colleagues were infected at that time. Um, People uh, weren't masking. I wasn't masking. We were embracing this sort of return to pseudo normalcy, and it set me back uh, at least six months in my recovery. And, I, and in some ways, I haven't gotten back to where I was last April. And so, I um, I sort of have swung back then to you know personally to wanting to wear masks, especially when I'm in a uh, an indoor. Uh, densely populated environment. Um, and I think that uh, from as subsequent speakers will talk about today, we know that um, repeat infections can lead to long COVID. We know that it, someone who had an initial infection that didn't result in long COVID on repeat infection can is not protected then from developing long COVID. Um, and the treatments we have, and vaccines we have, don't prevent it, uh, though they may mitigate the, the risk. So I wish that the that the messaging was more um, uh, that this is not over that this is not that this that this is different um, than other infections that, that people routinely deal with. This is not just a cold, and um, I think those messages aren't being really said anymore because there's such fatigue in the community, and and I get that I'm fatigued too with wearing the mask. And frankly, I think I feel better uh, when I'm not wearing one, but I. Um, I just worry about um, about the, the continued increase in, um, frankly, disabled people in the country who uh, who are losing uh, productive years of, of their life from this. So, Jeff, let me ask you about vaccines since you touched on it. So, you got had COVID. Uh, then you did you get vaccinated? Did you not? Uh, uh, has that helped in any way? Yeah. So, so I was infected in August and of twenty, and remembered vaccines. For us at Emory, it became available in that December, and I was there that first week to get my shot, wondering like many whether that would help uh, my symptoms. I, I certainly felt terrible after it, um, but once I recovered from um, from that, no, it, it didn't have any effect really, no long term effect. And so I've had my uh, my three shots so far, and um, I can't. I, and there's been no benefit for me anecdotally. Yes, I do know people that have long COVID and were improved afterwards. And I think uh, some patient-led surveys have shown about a quarter of people will get better after a vaccine, but most uh, don't change at all or, or get worse. What advice would you have to help clinicians differentiate between long COVID and patients looking for secondary gain? Yeah, and 
I think um, what I would take away from this is, again, this message of humility. I, I um, try to take patients at their at, at face value. And so if they're coming to me and they're expressing um, suffering and they're describing symptoms that I can't see, I will um, I will take that at face value. And I, I'll tell you that, you know, I speak from a position, perhaps of privilege as an emergency physician in that I'm not the one who has to make that decision in the end. I, what I'm offering these patients in, in, in my practice usually is connections to, to others and to resources. Um, and I'm not the gatekeeper of things like disability insurance and others um, or long-term work notes, let's say. But, um, but I would say that uh, the vast majority of patients are, uh, you know, in my, in my practice have been um, very, very forthcoming and straightforward. And um, and if a couple people benefit, frankly, alongside who, who who don't merit it, alongside many others who really do need your help, then that's probably a risk worth taking. So Jeff, somebody's asking, can you share where you found some of the patient groups that you found helpful for you? Are, did you find them in social media? Uh, are there some resources that we should all be looking into? And if you're willing to share later, that'll be great. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to. And you know, the, the sad thing is that a, a lot of the patient, the big patient uh, advocacy groups have shut down their efforts uh, because of lack of lack of funding at this point. Um, there's you know groups on Facebook and many people are active on Twitter. Um, for me, I, I used a group called Body Politic, which was based on the Slack platform, and it was, uh, and they even had a, a special channel just for healthcare providers with long COVID. Um, so there's a lot. There was a lot to weed through on there, but it was a good a good place for me for validation for um, preventing. But more importantly, when I was going to try a new therapy to see what other people had uh, described about their experiences with it, and uh, to be able to ask some other informed questions with my physicians. Excellent. And we have one of the uh, members of the audience, Dr. Alan McCutcheon, who is a, a a neurologist who uh, at UCSD who's done a lot of work on HIV neurocognitive impairment, and he has question says, please tell us about your cognition improvement, the timing, and the relationship to other symptoms. Did you say the cognition improvement? Yeah, yeah. You know, a big part of the dealing with the brain fog was learning how to pace, uh, and. Um, and by pacing, I mean being able to predict when I was going to crash and limiting my my um, activity and my exertion bef uh, to some degree just just before that. And that was part of why we were only doing four hour shifts at work. But even there, um, those first, especially that first year of it, if I had um, a couple really tough cases in a row where I was having to to stand for a while and run from room to room, um, I would the more I exerted myself, the, the cloudier I would get. And I learned that I would need to speak up to my colleagues and say, um, can you cover me for 15 minutes? And I would go to a quiet place and sit down and collect myself. And, and usually that would be enough to get me through those four hours. Um, it has, uh, the brain fog has gotten better over time, uh, just I think as the other symptoms have, um, have too, I think it, it was, Perhaps it's a chicken or the egg question, but um, as I've we've gotten a better hold on my um, on the tachycardia and the post-exertional malaise, uh, that has come along with those other symptoms. And so, 
getting to the right dose of metoprolol and using the antihistamines has really been key to getting getting that under control. Perfect. Well, have you had behavioral changes? Somebody's asking, you know, such as irritability or anything like that. Perhaps they should ask my wife. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't think so, other than to say, um, like many, when I'm feeling bad, uh, I act bad. Um, and, and, you know, I think the kids, my kids have been really um, gracious with me. Um, but I'll say to them, look, this is a rough day. Uh, I'm, I'm not feeling great. And I need to just rest. And they've learned that that means that if they pu push me, that's those are the days where I will be more irritable, and um, and I'm really grateful that they they grown to understand that. My son and I, my son's nine, and he's um, he's really been uh, remarkably understanding and uh, maybe savvy about about this. And he'll ask me things like, "How much energy do you have today, Daddy?" And based on what I say, he'll say, "Okay, so today's a day we can play soccer, or today we should have a have a catch on with you on the couch." Um, and so he really on his own has learned how to, um, dial up or down what to ask me for even. Um, and it, you know, it really, uh, hurts me to some extent that, that my, any nine-year-old just have to think about that with their father. Uh, but it also, um, I'm also impressed and, and very grateful, uh, the way that he's, he and my daughter have, have dealt with that. So one of the questions that comes is that you you mentioned you use antihistamines. Are you using H one or H two blockers for both? Yeah, both. Um, we've tried to titrate this down as, several times, and really, we felt in the end that um, fexofenadine twice a day and famotidine twice a day um, have been have been really helpful, both in the in the malaise and the fog. Um, and as I try and come off them, I, I, I notice those symptoms ratcheting up pretty quickly. And so there's um, that that implies that there's some mast cell activation that's that's a part of this, which is not uncommon for people with dysautonomia, um, though that is certainly out of my wheelhouse to understand it. So have you tried low dose naltrexone? Yes, um, that is a tough thing to find. And so again, this was uh, lucky for me that I was able to you know, afford that. Um, and um, we, this was about 18, maybe 24 months ago that we tried it. Um, I didn't notice any difference with my, uh, with my long COVID symptoms at all. I slept a little bit better on it, but that was, that was about it. Um, <laughs> Omnia has been a big part of what was difficult for me in the beginning. And somebody from the audience says, uh, uh, do you really have cognitive, you know, impairment, or is your inability to work due to fatigue and low endurance, or or a combination of this? It's hard to know, honestly. I, I had um, some formal cognitive testing in 2021, um, and uh, here at Emory, and that was uh, it was normal, and uh, with the caveat that I fatigued during the test, um, but. You know the big question mark is, especially for you know uh, someone who's uh, a physician, is you know where where did I start and where am I now? I certainly never had cognitive testing before, so I don't know what the objective answer is. Whether I ever really did have cognitive deficits or 
um, or just this sort of cloudiness that, that got in my way alongside all these other symptoms. Yeah, knowing you and knowing you and knowing the emergency medicine physician, you guys don't get clouded very easily. So, right. uh, so a couple of more questions. You know, an, an audience member says, uh, "Do you feel that you are at a plateau of physical and cognitive ability, or do you continue to see some improvement?" Um, I, I've been on a plateau for quite some time. My uh, my cardiologist has some other ideas about. Um, um, venous pooling and uh, and in the abdomen and pelvis that we're sort of thinking about now um, as ways to keep pushing. Um, but I would say that I haven't improved probably in, well, at least half a year or so. Um, I will intermittently and very rarely have days where I can taste, which is delightful. So yesterday I would say I had 50% of my taste back. Um, and that just reminds me that it's those nerves aren't gone. Um, but the, the summertime is particularly difficult for me, um, as it is for many with, with dysautonomia, the, the heat, uh, is, is much more difficult. So you'll see me outside with fans and sometimes an ice vest. Um, and I noticed that, um, so, so the malaise still, still sets in and it's, and it's still harder in the summertime. So where my mindset is, I would say, is that. Uh, yeah, I don't expect to have um, much more improvement at this point. After three years, I will be grateful for it if it happens. Well, listen, thank you very much. We, uh, Jeff, we have uh, just a lot of comments of people saying, wow, this was great. Uh, what a wonderful patient perspective to share. We appreciate you taking the time to share your own experience and to tell us, and just, just to remind us that that this is real, right? That this is an illness that is going to affect millions and that we as, as physicians, as care providers, but also as employers are going to have, as colleagues, we're going to have to adapt. We're going to have to learn uh, how to deal with this. And I think we're all learning, and that's why we're here at this, this webinar. So I appreciate you being with us. And uh, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, uh, Dr. Curry. Yeah, thank you. And before you go, Jeff, I just wanted to ask um, one other question, just from your perspective, um, as somebody who's experiencing this and in, in working in a healthcare system. You mentioned a cardiologist, uh, different physicians. What, what do you think the ideal model of care is? And, and do you feel like you've been able to, or your institution has been responsive to developing that for, for people who are experiencing long COVID? I'm not gonna criticize my institution with my Dean on the call, Dr. Currier, but- uh, <laughs> Sorry about I, that. In general, institutions, let's- no, listen. Chris, criticism is welcome. We, we all are learning and we all need to improve. This is something new. What I will say is um, my doctors have uh, connected me themselves with each other spoke that I, that I needed. And um, I think for many patients, I think the ideal way to do this would be to, to start with a, a physician that understands the, the whole picture of long COVID uh, who then can make those connections, knowing that um, that long COVID is not a, a single entity, but rather many different phenotypes that, or maybe even different diseases. That um, so so we won't all need the same resources. Um, the challenge I think for for primary care physicians is that, that that's often the first point of contact, and they may not. Um, it, it relies on them having knowledge of and access to people. Uh, to whom the patient can be referred. 
and I, I, my wish would be that everyone would have access to uh, some center of excellence that, that understands the, the big picture and then can, can make those connections. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing today. It's really uh, been very impactful. Pleasure. Okay, we're gonna move on